The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Matthew 25 is the final section where Jesus is teaching here in the book of Matthew. We have been looking through, uh, preaching through the book of Matthew chapter by chapter as we've moved through it. And last week we looked at Matthew 24, which is all about uh, the details of the end times, right? And uh, here's a summary of that. We don't know (laughs) when Jesus is returning, but we do know that he's coming back. And so what we're doing with the Matthew 25 is kind of these three visual pictures that Jesus gives us of how he wants us to be thinking about and living as disciples, people who love him. What does it look like to be his disciples between now and that unexpected time when Jesus returns? That's what we're looking at in Matthew 25. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray and ask for God's help, and we're going to look at this together. Is that cool? Father, we are grateful that you are with us this morning, that you have called us in Jesus uh, to be near to you, and that you welcome broken um, and ridiculous people like us and make us sons and daughters of your family. So I pray that you would be with us this morning and uh, give us your spirit to understand your word. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you guys are familiar. Does anybody know who C.S. Lewis is? So C.S. Lewis is really famous for his Chronicles of Narnia books, right? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy walks through a wardrobe and finds herself in a magical winterland of animals and magical beasts that all talk, and they have to fight the White Witch, right? That's his most famous book. But if you're asking me what is my personal favorite book of C.S. Lewis, it's this book called The Great Divorce. And The Great Divorce is um, another one of these fantastical stories by C.S. Lewis where he imagines a guy falling asleep and waking up in all places, uh, waking up in hell. And waking up in hell and taking, it's going to sound more ridiculous, taking a bus and taking a bus all the way to go visit heaven. It's a very strange story. (laughs) As you can tell, taking a bus from hell to heaven would be a strange story indeed. But the, the, the story is all about this dynamic of what is heaven and hell really about? Um, C.S. Lewis takes hell very seriously and takes heaven very seriously. And what does it look like to be the type of people who end up in heaven or hell? And one of the things that C.S. Lewis uh, says in the book is he, he kind of comments on hell. And this kind of gets us towards this chapter this morning as he says, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is open. See, the point of what C.S. Lewis grabs at in this book, The Great Divorce on Heaven and Hell, is that at the end of the day, people who desire joy find it in Jesus and Jesus alone. And people who end up in hell are people who are constantly and, con- and consistently gnawing away at themselves to find joy. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in the end of Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is all about, uh, we're getting the, audio, the video audio working here. So I don't wanna be doing feedback for you guys the whole time. That'd be a bit fun, not fun. In the end, our final state, heaven or hell, is the outgrowth of our desires now. 
And so what Jesus is aiming at in these three pictures of what he's showing us in Matthew 25, we're going to look at a story about a wedding party. We're going to look at a story about investors. We're going to look at about a story of a shepherd. And in these three stories, Jesus is going to be leading us to seeing how joy now fits into this ultimate reality then. See, Jesus is driving at our joy, and that is his main purpose of our discipleship. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to, with the summary statement of this whole chapter, true disciples eagerly anticipate Jesus' return. That's what this whole chapter is about. True disciples eagerly anticipate Jesus' return because Jesus is coming back, and he wants to teach us something now about what it's like to be a disciple today and this week and looking forward to him returning then. That's, that is today and that day, the two days in view. And so what does it look like to be a true disciple? What does it mean to be a true disciple who is joyfully dependent on Jesus and looking forward to his return? So we're going we're gonna to break down these three stories, and we're just going to ask them in questions. We're gonna, the first, que- first story we're going to look at, is there anything on the inside? So we're going to look at this story. Uh, maybe this is in your Bible called the Ten Virgins or the Ten Girls. It's about the wedding party. So we're going to pick up in chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven, so he's talking about the final day when he returns. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all, those, um, then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came out, came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is maybe a very common scene. Uh, Don't get tripped up on the whole uh, ten virgins uh, for one bridegroom thing. This isn't uh, teaching that um, we should all have ten wives. That's not what this is all about. It's a cultural thing where it would have been basically the wedding party, right? All the bridesmaids, right? All the bridesmaids kind of waiting. I'm not exactly sure how they did their weddings, but clearly there was, uh, much like our weddings, our, our, our weddings, there was a lot of uh, waiting around, right? <laughs> there was a lot of waiting around for big things to happen, right? That's, that seems very familiar. And kind of like any sort of wedding that maybe you've been involved with, um, during that waiting around period, uh, you fall asleep, <laughs> or you want to take a nap, or you want to do something else other than what you're supposed to be doing, which is waiting for the big events to happen, right? This feels very familiar when you kind of get down past like the whole 10 virgins thing, right? It's just like, this is just a wedding party, and everybody's just sitting around looking at their clocks, waiting for the pictures to be taken for we can go up and do the wedding, the main event. And in that scenario, Right? What Jesus doesn't say is that it was a sin for these girls to fall asleep. Right? Because we could look at this and say, oh, what Jesus is saying is, don't fall asleep. He says that in other places. 
But here it's kind of like, well, yeah, you just kind of fall asleep when you're waiting around. But what he drives at is the main point is that half of the girls had their oil ready and half of them didn't. With that saying, all 10 of them were invited. All 10 of them were uh, invited by the groom to come and be a part of the wedding. Come and be a part of the celebration. Come and be a part of my family. Come and be a part of all these great things. All 10 of them responded, but half of them internalized it and half of them didn't. Half of them said, if we're going to go and be a part of this, we need to take this seriously and prepare on the inside the oil for their lamps. And the other five were a bit flippant. Like they got dressed, they got, you know, their whatever the bridesmaid dresses on and they got their flowers and all that stuff. But they they weren't ready. They hadn't internalized the invitation. They hadn't taken it seriously enough to where it changed how they prepared for the day. You see, what Jesus is saying is that the foolish are flippant about the invitation, but the wise, his disciples, us, are we internalizing Jesus' invitation to us? Are we internalizing, are we taking that invitation to trust in him and lean on him and turning that into true, deep, real faith? You see, all through the gospel, all through the book of Matthew, Jesus is hammering, hammering discipleship because he looks at us and says, I know that you guys are a bunch of boneheads who don't know how to do one day after the next, right? If you're anything like me, Tomorrow is going to be a mess, just like yesterday. And Jesus is saying, I am your good shepherd and king, and I'm trying to teach you how to be with me and follow me. And he is taking his teaching and wanting it to be internalized inside of us. Christians cannot be party liners, building preservers, swag-carrying members of a church, and get into heaven. Jesus is saying there must be an internal reality. That doesn't mean that Christians are perfect, right? Some of my uh, non-Christian friends uh, in the city sometimes will say, well, Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites. I'm like, well, good, then you'd fit in. Um, It's just that Christians are self-consciously hypocrites, right? I know that I'm a hypocrite. I know that I say you should not do these things, and yet internally, and sometimes I do them myself, right? That's not, the, that's not what this is teaching, that you have to be a perfect oil keeper right? or a perfect faith keeper. What this is saying is, have you taken what Jesus is and teaches? Are you working it out on the inside? That, this is the reality of faith, basically. What Jesus is saying is, are, are you somebody that is taking who Jesus is and what he is all about and teaches us, and are you putting it consistently on the inside, right? Right, it's fun. Um, some of us are uh, natural-born citizens of, uh, of the U.S., and some of us, are some of our immigrant and refugee friends in the neighborhood, have to take tests to be able to become citizens. And when they take the test, they have to take a 100-question test, and they have to internalize a number of things uh, that I have, frankly, either forgotten or didn't know about. Right? They have to take all these, Ameri- these dynamics of what does it mean to be an American and put it on the inside so they can take this test and pass it. Right? That, Jesus is saying, are you internalizing who I am between this day and that day? Are you taking all of who I am, all of what I've offered you, all the goodness that I've given you, the grace and mercy, and are you putting that on the inside so that you are, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you're not only saved by the God of peace, but becoming a son and daughter of peace, somebody who acts and lives out 
just like the Father who has saved them? Is your Christianity proactively internalizing Jesus? Are you yearning for, delighting in, depending upon him? What does that look like for you? I mean, we talk about devotions all the time, not because there's some sort of marker of true Christianity. Waking up, reading your Bible with a cup of coffee, and praying 15 minutes. Just because we need to get God's word in us. We need to know our Jesus better. And it's just a practical way to do it. Like, if you don't do your devotions in the morning, you do them in the evening, or you do them in some other way, I don't care. What I care is that are you getting who Jesus is for you on the inside? Because our God is a felt God. Our Jesus is a known Jesus who loves us. When, it talk, when the Bible talks about the love of God that explodes the heart, that's not some like intellectual concept. That's an experience of who Jesus is. We must be going after Jesus for ourselves because at the end of the day, when Jesus returns, you cannot borrow somebody else's faith. It is your own. And if there is no faith, Jesus will say to you, I do not know you. So we're going to ask another question. True disciples eagerly anticipate Jesus' return. Is there something on the inside? The second question is, do you have anything to show? I'm just going to pick up in this next parable. Maybe this is familiar to you, and maybe it's not, but let's let's read through it, and then we'll go back and talk about it. For it, so he's talking about the last day, the kingdom of heaven, when Jesus comes back, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two times more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, um, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you would deliver to me two talents. And here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And here's the key part. He who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scatter no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here, have what is yours. But his master said to him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested your money with the bankers and I, my coming, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. So to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if you're sticking with me, what's going on here is this entire business venture. Right? I'm not sure if you guys enjoy reading uh, business news or business stories or books, but this is basically an investment story, right? Where a, a business owner, he has a bunch of money, and he gives it to his servants, and he asks them to deal, deal with it correctly. A talent, I don't know if you've heard this before, but sometimes a talent is taken as being um, like a, this is where in English we get the word for talent, right? right? We, like, is your, what's your talents? Like, are you good at the flute? Are you good with money? Um, I don't have that talent. <laughs> That's not what this is talking about. A talent in those days, a talent would have been half of a lifetime's earnings. So if the average life expectancy was 20, you know, uh, 40 years old and worked from like 13 to 20, you might have been like half of that uh, would have been a talent. So in today's terms, I looked at the numbers, like the general average income for people who graduated high school is around a million dollars and your total life expected earnings. So let's just say a talent is half of that. So $500,000. So what this master is doing is he's giving to one, right? $2.5 million, he's giving to one a million dollars and he's giving one $500,000. So this is not some sort of like trivial situation. He's giving them um, a boatload of money, so to speak. (laughs) And expectation of what you do with a talent, with with that amount of money, what you do with that is you invest it, right? You don't just like sit around, um, or I don't know if you guys watch Parks and Rec, you know, like there's like crazy situations where they just like, you know, buy a bunch of like video games, give away iPads and all that stuff. Like this, this is not like that situation. You're supposed to invest this money, like Warren Buffett or something like that. You're supposed to invest it to turn that money into more money. And so when we have that in view and we look at the story, that the nature of what is given is to be used and invested it begins to turn the story, rather than from being, are you a five-talent Christian, are you a two-talent Christian, or one-talent Christian, right? I don't know about you, I've been around really super smart people, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, if there is a five-talent Christian, that's them. I'm just like, I'm just trying to be faithful with my one little intellect. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, I have given you freely from who I am. Now, are you utilizing it? Are you using it and putting it to work? Right, that, that's the nature of what is going on, right? Because you see there in verse 24, he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scatter no seed. You see, in terms of this story, Jesus is drawing our attention to the false disciple's perspective of God. A false disciple sees God as harsh, furrow-browed, stingy, mean, this God that will flick you away and will reap things that he does not own. That is a mean and masochistic view of God that often fuels what appears to be Christian faith, right? I am so afraid that God's not going to help me obey his command. So I will come up with all these ridiculous rules and regulations for my life so that heaven forbid I sin and make God angry and he pushes me away and he forsakes me, right? Jesus is not saying that God is a stingy God. God is a free and giving God who gives us, like in terms of the story, talents and grace that we do not earn or deserve, right? These servants have no claim. Like they don't come and say, Hey, God, I, I really deserve this good, this good stuff that you could give me. No, the, 
that one servant who was fearful gives us a picture of what it looks like to be a false disciple, to be afraid of God, to cringe at God, to think that God is eager to get rid of you. See, in terms of the story, God is eager to bring his people in and to use wherever you are, whoever you are, to advance his name, to make him look great, right? This story is, I think, a picture of what it looks like to receive grace. Grace is uh, just a Bible word for saying God's unmerited favor, right? God's look at you and he doesn't have to smile and be near you, but he does anyways, right? That's what, that's what the Bible means when it says grace. God's nearness, his goodness for you, even though you don't deserve it. And so what Jesus is drawing our attention to is as a disciple, are you putting God's grace to work? Are you putting his grace active in your life? Are you, are you putting it in effect in where is, areas where you struggle, right? The things that the addictions and things like that that we face and, and are wrestling with, whatever they are, whether it's to Netflix or to substances, right? or is it to addictions to our own goodness, trying to prove how good we are to other people? Jesus is saying, all of these things require the grace of God to be active in your life. Are you putting God's grace to work? Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about this a few, uh, few books later in the New Testament. He has these two verses that I thought I'd draw our attention to. Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 3, 7 or 9, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the power, by a working of his power. See, Paul is drawing our attention to this very story, this dynamic where he has received grace that he did not deserve, but it is working in his life by God's power to produce a ministry of the gospel where he is, right? That, that's not just for pastors like me. That, that's for all church members. God's power at work in us, God's gift of his grace. Are there 1 Corinthians 15, 10? This is one of those weird ones. If you ever kind of read this and you're like, is, is Paul kind of like a pompous jerk? This is kind of where Paul gets on that edge. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, right? Popeye, right? Anybody? And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Right? There is a weird paradox in the Christian life where we want to draw attention not to ourselves, but to the way God works in us to draw attention to how great the giver is. Right? There is a working in our lives that is just this weird grace dynamic where we have to say, there is no way I could have survived that trial. But I did, not because of how great I am, because of how good God's grace is in me. Right? This is the work of grace in our lives that Jesus is calling us to. Do you have something to show with your Christian life? And that does not mean that you've got a book with your name on it <laughs> or a church with your name on the plaque or anything like that. Often the reality is that people who are most saturated with grace are most forgotten by history. Right? This is what Jesus is saying is, like if, he, if you were to be given a car and to not use it because you don't want to get it scratched, He's saying, no, I, I died so that my grace could be in you. Now put it to work. So how are you putting God's grace to work in your life? 
If you're married, are you living a life that you're, you are dying to yourself day by day for the good and flourishing of your spouse? Are you saying I am these, these almost forbidden words? I am sorry. Are you the first repenter in your marriage? Are you the one to own your junk and to say, I am sorry for how I've offended you? Right. If you are married, you should be giving a life of repentance and grace to your spouse, not because there's any way in which you're you're trying to earn God's goodness to you. Because God has taken a wayward person like you and made you a son or daughter of the living king. If you're single, what does it look like to put God's grace at work in your life so that you walk in purity and chastity? so that you give your body to the service of others and laying your life down for the good of the church and for your neighbors, so that you use your hands to serve the needs of others. If you're at work at a hard job where you feel like disrespected and looked down on, what does it look like to consistently look at your boss? Who has put you down? Who has cut you out? And say, I know the king who owns this job. And I'm going to be serving him instead. If you're facing addictions, what does it look like to take that grace and say, I know the fear of the numbness and pain of tomorrow that I want to do away with right now. And what does it look like to look at this, this Jesus and say, Jesus, you own all of these things. And so I will trust to you tomorrow, the pain that I may experience so that I may fight this addiction today and find your help in saying no to what seems so powerful over me. If these are all questions that you're wrestling with, this is why we have missional community groups, by the way, because we can't address all of them from this moment. But Jesus is after producing fruit in our lives and the hard realities of our lives require his grace to be at work. So let's commit to do this together. That is why we get together to put his grace to work in our lives. Because, let's just remind ourselves, we don't deserve it. We deserve to be left to ourselves, clenched fist hearts of rejecting God. But in his smile upon us, in Jesus, he has brought us near so that his grace can free us in Jesus. So we're going to look at this last this last parable. And this is the final judgment where Jesus is giving us a picture of the final end. And the question we're going to kind of put under this, right, we've talked about, is there anything on the inside? Do you have anything to show? Who are you serving? Picking up verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and his goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? 
when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and, and a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is one of those hard parables. It's a hard picture because it gives us a picture of the ultimate day. But if you're listening to what we were saying before about the good and free grace of the gospel, you read this story and you're like, is this teaching that we earn our salvation? Is this teaching that we earn? Because you notice, right, the people who enter into eternal life, right, they did all these things and Jesus rewards them. There's two reasons why it's not teaching us what we might call works righteousness or works salvation. There's two reasons. First of all, um, the people who are commended uh, were confused <laughs> by Jesus commending them, right? They weren't saying, Jesus wasn't, they weren't saying to Jesus after he said he did all these things, they weren't saying, um, right, so much pay up. You know, they weren't saying like, oh, right. I remember when I did all those things for you, Jesus. Now give me the key. Let's go. Right. So first of all, uh, it's not teaching that they were like, you need to be like earning your way into God's favor. But second thing, do you see that there? Um, verse 34, come, you who are blessed by my, by my father, inherit the kingdom. You do not earn an inheritance. I don't know if anybody's gotten an inheritance from somebody in their family. Um, but, like, you don't earn it, right? It just suddenly shows up, granddad passed away, and then suddenly there's all this money that you get in the, in the mail. But that's a shortened version of that story, by the way. Uh, an inheritance is not something that you earn, right? An inheritance is something that is graciously given to you. It's not something that you deserved or earned. It's something that is given to you freely, right? And you, you notice that... Verse 34, come you who are blessed by my father, the father who has loved you, who has chosen to love you, inherit the kingdom, what? Prepared for you, not earned by you, prepared for you from the, from when? From the foundation of the world, right? Before you did anything, before you took a breath of air, before you were, were crying at your first birthday, right? Before you did anything to please God, prepared for you before the foundation of the world, in Christ, is this inheritance that God has chosen to give you, right? This is the doctrine that we call, and sometimes uh, in systematic theology, we call it election, right? God chose just to say, I'm going to bless you and welcome you into my kingdom, not because you've deserved it or earned it, but because I am a gracious giving God. Right? And Jesus uses this picture to inspire <coughs> our discipleship to ask us this question, who are you serving? Right? Verse 40. For the disciples, Jesus says, and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
in contrast, he says in verse 45, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Right, these two polar opposites, the people who have rejected God, I would read this to say they have not served God or his people or the least of God's creation. And the people of God have chosen to serve God and his people. That's why Jesus says, right, verse 45, verse 40, to the least of these, my brothers. Right, the attention is on, are you serving people that are inconvenient, but chosen to be your family in Jesus by a good and gracious father? Or are you choosing to live in isolation and serving yourself? I've lately thought this, uh, our life together as a church is so rich and, and, um, and meaningful for me, but that's not to say that we don't have struggles together, right? And I've thought uh, lately about my neighbors um, who have friends and family in the area, and they kind of like lock in on just those friends and family, and they don't, they're not a part of a church. And I thought, you know, I can understand not wanting to invite more needs and problems into my life. That's not to say that church members are member or problems, but it's to say that there, there is a dynamic of needing to consistently press towards grace together, to find help together that, frankly, uh, my neighbors who are Christians don't have to do, right? Th- this picture that Jesus is, is leaning us towards, is showing us, is that the life of a Christian and serving a compassionate God it lives itself out in compassion for our neighbors and our family in Jesus. The people in this room right now, the people who are part of this community, who are in other rooms or are homesick or doing something else, right? The people who are part of King's Cross, we are called by the compassionate King to serve those in our family that need his help as an evidence that we have been marked and owned by the God of grace. Right, Jesus at the end is what he is saying is he is not ashamed of our need. He is not ashamed of our neediness. He is not ashamed of our problems. He's not ashamed of the baggage that we come to him with. And we should not be either. We should be proactive like the king towards the vulnerable and the weak, the voiceless and overlooked, the helpless and needy, the inconvenient and troubled, those who require persistent help, those who like me, are an absolute mess. These are the ones that Jesus says, when you serve them, you serve me. Then you express the heart of Jesus. As we live our life together, are we serving the king who is compassionate and so living it by showing compassion to our family in Jesus? That is the direction of this passage. But there are a few things that we have skipped over that I want to draw our attention to as we close. Anybody who is in Christ, who is a Christian, like I said earlier, knows that they are a hypocrite. We can say these things, but we all know that we have failed. We have all failed to have a living and proactive faith in Jesus. We've all failed in being productive with his grace in our lives. We have all failed in being compassionate towards our family in Jesus. But remember where this story is. This is not Matthew 25, 
in an isolated box. This is Matthew 25. This is the, if you have one of those Bibles with red letters where Jesus' words are in red. This is the last teaching of Jesus. And after this comes his walk defiant against all powers of this world towards the cross. Where he walks up the hill of Calvary and dies for people like us who have failed to have faith, failed to be productive, failed to love other people. This is where Jesus ends his teaching and then he takes it serious from here out and he walks towards the cross to die for dirtbags like us who cannot fulfill what he's commanded us to do, right? In fact, the very stories that he's just told is lived out in the cross of Christ, right? The virgins that reject, Je- that reject the groom, they are what? Thrown into darkness. Jesus, at the moment of his cross, is surrounded by the darkness of the world, surrounded by the filth of our sin. He lives in our darkness as he dies in our place. He has all of his clothes. The king of the universe who owns all things, who is the great investor in all creation, who owns everything, is stripped down and naked on a cross. Everything, his clothes are bartered over. He has everything taken away from him. Not to mention his friends who disown him, his his buddies here, whom he's investing in, they leave him. But not only that, truly I say to you, I do not know you, verse 12. The cross of Christ, his love for the Father is answered with silence from the Father. Because at that moment, Jesus is living in the realities of our brokenness and sin and all the baggage and dirt of our lives. And he says, Father, why would, why would you forsake me? It's because he would die out of love for us. Right? He dies so that we, who are the failures of these parables, could become, by his death, weak limping examples of his grace. And not only that, let's end on the happy note that Jesus intends for us to see here. Did you see the rewards in the parables? Verse 10, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went into him to the marriage feast. Right? Verse 21, with the investor His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Notice this, enter into the joy of your master. It says the same thing in verse 23. And then we've already kind of drawn our attention here. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Right? Each of these parables climaxes in this giving of joy from the master, right? The bridegroom and the bride, the the groom who says to his beloved, you're mine now. I love you. Let's feast and have a good time. Those who have, he has given his money to have invested and used it well. It says to him, enter into my joy for all that I've accomplished through you. Right at the end, he says, My kingdom is a kingdom of joy. I want you here with me. 
You see, the return of Jesus is about this culmination of all of our hopes and dreams to see the realization of true, undefiled, unending joy with him, where we will live with him forever. That's why we anticipate him coming back, because we had these little tastes of joy now. But we want the real deal, the unending joy that he's bringing to us, the unending love that he brings to us, this groom who will have us to be with him forever. This is the Jesus that ends this story here, because what does he do now? He goes to the cross where he purchases us. See, true disciples eagerly anticipate Jesus' return. We might just add a little word in there. True disciples eagerly anticipate Jesus' joyful return because Jesus is happy he's coming back. And so as his true disciples, we're anticipating that joyful return. Let's pray. Father, you've been good to us. And I pray that as we look at our Jesus here, who dies to make us his bride, who dies to make us your family, that we would anticipate his return, that we would eagerly look forward to the joy of being with him. We pray this all because of his mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.